Well, I invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 14. Luke 11, verse 14. You'll find that, find that on page 869, the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we invite you to take that Bible in the pew rack as your very own. While you're finding your way to Luke 11:14, 14, um, I do uh, want to encourage you to be in prayer for uh, Ryan and Elizabeth, whom we just saw by video, their children, Seth and Gabby. Um, they are uh, just uh, literally um, miles from ISIS-controlled territory, um, and they are there uh, serving God faithfully. Uh, God is already doing a mighty work through them, and uh, they need our prayers, not just for their physical safety, but for their gospel work. And so uh, we will pray for them in a moment. Um, But uh, hopefully you found your way to Luke chapter 11, verse 14 through 28 this morning. I do encourage you, as I often do, to have God's Word open. Uh, We're going to work this through this passage, these 15 verses, verse by verse. You'll find it easier to follow along uh, and stay engaged in this message if you have a copy of God's Word with you during our time. So Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Hear now the Word of God. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Our Father, we, we're going to hear the word of God in just a moment. We even heard it read for us this morning. 
We want to do more than hear it. We want to keep it. We want it to change us. We want to be made more like Jesus this morning. And so we come before our Holy Father in His courts of heaven as your remnant called Hamilton Baptist Church adopted through the work of Jesus Christ and we ask you, our dear Father, change us today. Conform us into the image of our Lord. We pray for our brother Ryan and our sister Elizabeth, their children Gabby and Seth, far from home in a foreign and strange country. They are there because they love Jesus. And they want others to love Him as well. Is that not what you want, Father? Do you not want the lost saved, the nations to come in as Christ? Is He not the Lamb who was slain, who have purchased for you a people from every tribe and language and tribe and nation? Is He not therefore worthy? He is worthy of the praise of those people who reside in the Middle East and worship a false god. Will you not prosper their ministry that your name would be hallowed? For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. A house divided against itself cannot stand, said Abraham Lincoln in 1858 as a candidate for the U.S. Senate in the state of Illinois. He said it to the horror of his political advisors. He'd actually stand before the state house in the Senate and quote Jesus. In fact, he went on after he quoted and said, I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. He, of course, lost that election, but was vindicated two years later when he's elected the President of the United States and perhaps the greatest president we've ever had. It's interesting to me that he would use these words from Jesus to describe a war that is brewing in his young nation. And Jesus also, I think, when he shares these words, is speaking of war. He is referring to a war, in fact, a far deadlier war than America has ever waged, a war dealing with a far worse slavery than we ever employed, a war between God and the devil for the souls, the eternal souls of humanity. You see this passage is littered with references to war. You find dueling armies and kingdoms destroyed and strong men defending castles and the plunder of the spoils. This is describing a war that has been waging from the very beginning when God the Creator made spiritual beings to worship Him and adore Him. The Bible refers to them as angels. The chief of that order of angels, whom we know as Satan, rebelled against his creator, taking with him a number of other angels out of a desire to glorify and worship themselves. They took that fight down to this earth and led humanity, the pinnacle of God's physical creation, the very image bearers of God, to join in the devil's rebellion. 
And since then, my friends, there has been a cosmic battle that has been raging, that has, that has marred humanity with folly and destruction and pride and hatred. You have been born into a war. There is a war being waged right now, and it is affecting every one of us every day. This war is often hidden. It's hidden even in Scripture. We rarely see it explicitly mentioned in the Old Testament. I believe it is concealed behind idolatry and national conflict. It's a war that we don't see once Jesus ascends to heaven. You'll find it uh, explicitly mentioned very rarely after the ascension of Christ. But it is a battle that when Jesus walked upon this earth, it seemed like his arrival brought this massive escalation of conflict between these spiritual foes. So it is in Luke chapter 3 that we see Jesus out in the wilderness and being tempted by the devil for 40 days. It is in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus' sermon at Capernaum is interrupted by a demoniac. And later that night, the town would bring many people whom he would uh, liberate from unclean spirits. We see in Luke chapter 8... That Mary Magdalene, a supporter and follower of Jesus, had seven demons cast from her. And later on in Luke 8, we find Jesus confronted by the demoniac of the Gadarenes, filled with a legion of demons. In Luke chapter 9, we see a demon possessed by possessing a little boy, throwing him into the fire or into the water. In Luke chapter 10, uh, the 72 disciples return to Jesus rejoicing, saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name, right? We see it throughout our study of the Gospel of Luke. And we consider once again this war today. We'll consider not just the war, but our warrior, our conqueror, our liberator today. But first, will you please consider the war's captives? Consider, first of all, this morning, the war's captives. We see in verse 14, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. We see the first captive is this man who is possessed. A man has a demon. This demon has rendered this man mute. I don't know if you play this game at home. You ever, you ever play the quiet game at home? It is my favorite game, right? <laughs> quiet game. You could be the quietest, the longest. I don't know who invented that game. The utter genius of the man who, who played the quiet game and, and, and passed that on. We love the quiet game in our house. This man, however, is not playing. He has been rendered mute. We're not sure for how long. It seems like a long time based upon the reaction of the people to the liberation in which he receives from Christ. Maybe five years, maybe 20 years, maybe 60 years. He has not uttered a word. He has not said to his wife, I love you. He has not opened the scriptures with his children. He has not been able to, as you have the opportunity today, to sing his praises to God. And perhaps, most likely, he's also illiterate, as most people would be in this day. He can not only not speak, he cannot read, nor can he write, and therefore, how can he communicate? One commentator puts it this way, If the poor man in Luke 11 could not write, and very likely he could not, his needs and his feelings can only be conveyed by a frustrating combination of facial expressions, gestures, and sounds that probably he alone could understand. There were times when he might have felt like a prisoner within his own body. And that feeling was not unfounded because his tongue was chained by a demonic spirit that satisfied its perverse pleasure by keeping him inarticulate. To be tongueless was one thing. But to have one's tongue chained by palpable evil is far worse. That's what's happening in this man's life. 
Of course, when I begin to speak about demons in the 21st century in America, we, we Americans chafe a little bit against that idea, don't we? We, of course, live in a world in which materialism is embraced. And what I mean by that is, is our culture explains that uh, reality is limited to what can be perceived by our senses. Right? And everything that we have here has come about just by natural processes. Of course, Jesus did not hold that view. He told us that there is a personal being called God, and that God is a spirit. He is unseen by us. He is unsensed by us, if you will, at least by our natural senses. He also taught that there are other spiritual beings, namely demons, who exert powerful influence on us. Now, friends, we can take this too far, can't we? I mentioned that the, the, the predominance of the overt demonic warfare occurred, according to Scripture, during the life of Jesus, specifically during the three or four years of ministry of Jesus. So these type of things should not be our common experience. Right? And so I would, I would imagine that none of us, most likely, will never have a situation where we encounter something like this. But just because it is not overt does not mean it does not continue to exist. The war continues against our spiritual foes. Many, of course, will look at Jesus and say, well, you know, Jesus was clearly a very wise man, but he was naive. I mean, after all, we have a body of knowledge which Jesus was not privy to. He was, he was, he lived in a pre-scientific time. And so, of course, he thought uh, this problem or this problem was a demonic influence. We now know better. If you are tempted towards that understanding, I would encourage you to read the Gospels closely and carefully. Because Jesus would distinguish between the sick, the sad, the mentally ill, and the demon-possessed. In other words, he did not assume everyone who was sick or everyone who was sad or everyone who had mental illness had a demon. In fact, I would suggest that if Jesus were here today, he would say, you're the naive one. If you think that all of our problems can just be explained by natural processes, not by spiritual opponents. In fact, if all of our problems are just natural, why aren't we making any progress? I mean, why haven't we solved these issues? I mean, with all our education and medicine and psychoanalysis, and we got the UN, right? We got, I mean, what's the problem? Why aren't we making any progress? Why is it evil being subsided and, and health and vibrancy flourishing? I would suggest to you that there's something far more devious taking place as Christ, I believe, taught us. It was something that W.H. Auden discovered, a British poet and a vocal and ardent atheist who lived in New York City during World War II in a German neighborhood. In 1940, W.H. Auden walked into a movie theater that showed the German spin on the invasion of Poland. And he sat in that theater with all of his German neighbors, and that movie, or at least the reaction of the people in the movie, changed his life. He's sitting there watching this, and as the the poles appear on the screen, his German neighbors who are in the theater begin to stand up and shout and scream. He was incredibly disturbed by this. He, he was amazed by this. These are people he knew. These are people he had dinner with and he spent time with. These were not bad people. When they saw the polls on the screen, they stood up in the theater and, shelled, and yelled, kill them. And, and, and in reaction to that, W.H. Auden, this ardent atheist, lost his faith in atheism. 
He walked into that theater an atheist. He walked out of that theater a theist. He said, I can't explain what I have just experienced by simply a natural system. How do you, how do you, how do you explain this, this reaction? I mean, listen, if it's just evolution, if it's just strong eating the weak, if it's just a survival of the fittest, what moral ground do you have to condemn the Nazis or ISIS or anyone else that's just stronger than weaker and they are dominating them? If that's how we got to this point, just time and chance and strength, then why can't we, how can we condemn anyone? And yet there was something in him that had to condemn it. There's something in us, isn't there, that has to condemn it. We have a moral compass within us that cannot be explained by natural processes. In fact, he walked out and he says, if it's just evolution, how do you explain these good people being sucked into this evil system? He said, something evil is taking place there. It's impossible to explain this evil by simply bad choices or lack of education or poverty. I tell you, friends, it's evil and it's demonic. The Bible says, if you don't believe that, you're the naive one, you're the simpleton. Our problems are much worse. We need God. Just like this man needed God, didn't he? This man rendered mute, suffering torment every moment of his day under assault. He's captive. But I tell you, Jesus has come to set the captives free. As we read in verse 14, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. I don't know what he said. Luke doesn't tell us. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. I'm not sure if he said something like that, that would be good and appropriate, right? When Jesus lets loose your tongue, you ought to use it in response to praising him, right? To rejoicing in him. And he certainly began to speak. Others began to marvel. You see that? They, they are amazed at this. This man now can speak. But sadly, other people saw the miracle and came to a vastly different reaction. For this man was not the only captive. Look, secondly, at the deceived. Verse 15. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Right? They can't deny the miracle. But what they can do is they could deny the source of his power. Right? You notice they didn't say, well, he's just a good teacher. Right? As we like to do today. That option was not open to them. It's nonsense. Here's a man who casts out a demon. And all they could do is doubt where he's getting the authority to do so. And so they attribute it to Beelzebul which is just another way to refer to the devil. Beelzebul literally means Lord of the Flies. Used to be referred to an ancient Canaanite god. And it became by this time a reference to the devil. And so they're saying it's just some demonic trick. He's the devil's tool. So you have the deceived there. You have the possessed. You also have a third group of captives. The unreasonable, verse 16. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Right? So maybe it's God. Maybe it's the devil. We don't know. Right? The jury's still out, they say. We need more evidence. Right? We, we, let's see some more power. This seems to me the more common response to Jesus, right? It's not hostility towards Jesus. Maybe I'm open to him. But he has to prove himself. Show himself to me. Now, you probably already can feel the irony here, because what more can he do? Did he not just show what he can do? He just cast out this demon from this man who is mute, and, and that's, of course, not the only thing he did. Over and over again, he's showing his power, and it culminated in the fact that he rose from the dead, bodily, bodily, historically, physically, appeared to more than 500 people to prove he was who he says he was. I would suggest to you that most of the people who are skeptical towards Christ... Do not need more evidence. It is not an honest skepticism. It is just a way to keep God at arm's length, to protect themselves 
from him. There is sufficient evidence if we're willing to receive it. The problem is with our heart. I think we're on the right track. If you jump to verse 29, a passage I hope to consider next week. It says, when, G- when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. Those who are asking for a sign are evil. Something wrong with their heart. You see, these groups are captive too. It's not as apparent as the mute man, is it? The devil attacks in many different ways. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the Bible says in verse 11, Do not be ignorant of Satan's schemes or methods. He has many methods. May I list for you just ten of them, briefly? Our time is running out already. Um, some people have identified that the names of the, our enemy help us identify the tactics in which we are not to be ignorant of. Ten quick names for our devil. He is, of course, called the Satan, which means accuser. Revelation 12 and verse 10. He is the accuser of the children of God. He accuses them day and night. The devil will come and say, you're a failure. You're beyond God's love. You can't forgive yourself. You better die. It'd be better if you were not here. Right? You hear words like that. Some of you have heard words like that. Those do not come from God. They come from an enemy. Secondly, he is called the devil, which means slanderer. You see that in Luke 4. He slanders God to men. He appears to Eve and says, did God really say this? He's not good. He's holding out on you. He slanders man to God. Job only loves you because you're kind to him, he says. Number three, he is called Apollyon. A-P-O-L-L-Y-O-N. You see that in Revelation 9 and verse 11. means destroyer. It reminds me that Jesus says in John 10.10, that famous verse, that he has come to kill, um, rob, and destroy. Kill, steal, and destroy. He destroys. He destroys marriages. He destroys relationships. He destroys legacies. He destroys churches. This is what he does. God is a creator. The devil is a destroyer. Number four, he is called the deceiver. Revelation 12, verse 9. He will deceive you. He will say to you, if trouble comes upon you, this is God doing this. God's bringing this on you. God doesn't love you. God is punishing you. You shouldn't trust him. Right? I think these people are clearly deceived. They think Jesus, they see what Jesus is doing. It's wonderful, kind, and compassionate. They say it's evil because they're deceived, right? This continues today. Are not Christians looked upon by many in our culture as the evil ones, right? We stand up for, for the life of an unborn child and we are called evil because of it. Is that not true? We, we say that Christ is the only way to find salvation with God, to have your sins forgiven, and we're evil and intolerant because of it, because this world is deceived. Number five, he is called the father of lies. John 8, verse 44. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Let me tell you, friends, that lying is demonic. All of us are bilingual. We speak English and we speak demonic whenever we lie. My children have heard this over and over again. When you lie to daddy, you're just not sinning against daddy. You're speaking the devil's language. There is no truth in him, Jesus says. He is a liar. He lies to us. Sin brings you lasting joy. Does God really want you to wait before you're married? Did He really rise from the dead? Are really all other faiths wrong? Do you really think I exist? It seems like the skeptics are falling prey. We need more evidence, right? There's not enough evidence to believe. Number seven, He's called Lucifer. means uh, light bearer, day star. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, He disguises Himself as an angel of light. Number seven, he is called the tempter. First Thessalonians 3, 5. 
When you're tempted to sin, that should be the air raid siren. That's battle coming upon you. You should flee to your captain. You should flee to your hero when the war is coming on. Number eight, he's called a murderer. John 8, verse 44. It's his final goal. He hates life. God is the author of life. The devil wants to bring as many into hell with him as he can. People, for some reason, think the devil is cool. The devil's exciting. You know what the devil does? He possesses little boys and throws them in the fire. He's a murderer. There's nothing cool about him. Number nine, he is the prince of this world, John 12. Elsewhere, he's called the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, or even more chilling in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world, which means he has great influence in this world. It's not hard to see, isn't it? The Holocaust, ISIS, tyranny, terrorism, injustice, child abuse, severe depression, politicians, sex trafficking. Self-mutilation, suicide, slums, starvation. Just look around. There's evil everywhere. An army of demons and billions of complicit soldiers. Number 10, he's called the enemy. Matthew 13, verse 28. My friends, I tell you, great hope for you that you realize you have an enemy. He has nothing good for you. He wants to take you captive. He's taken these people captive. But here's the wonderful thing. Jesus doesn't look at the mute man and say he's liberated and walk away. He's confronted by, by all these captives in front of him. And he doesn't just scoff at them and go on and say, when will you guys people learn? They say, you're in league with the devil and have great compassion in his heart, great grace in his heart. He comes to them and tries to free them. He begins to explain the war's combatants. The war, secondly, consider the war's combatants. Look in verse 17 as to what they accused Jesus of. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Right? He agrees the devil is real, but he says, I'm not helping the devil. I'm fighting him. He and I are at war together. Right? And he goes on to say, you say I'm in league with him. That's illogical. Why would Satan be casting out his own servant? He should give him a promotion rather than, than kick him out. If, if Satan's fighting against himself, the kingdom will fall. We understand that, don't we? A, what, what's strong? A united government strong. A divided one falls. A united family strong. A united church is strong. A united company. You divide them. You against, pit them against each other. They begin to fall. Right? Satan's evil, but he's not stupid. Jesus says it's not logical. By the way, this is not an isolated event. This is a key component to Jesus' ministry. He's constantly casting out demons. He sends the apostles out in Luke 9 with power over demons. He sends the 72 out in Luke 10 with power over demons. He is ripping down the kingdom of the devil during his ministry. And not only is it illogical, their accusation is inconsistent. Verse 19, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out, he says, therefore they will be your judges. Evidently, there are other people casting out demons. And Jesus, they all think that's good. And Jesus says, well, if I'm doing it by Satan, then, then who are they doing it by? Are they part of the devil's team as well? You can't have it both ways. Be consistent. You're, you're inconsistent. Instead, he says in verse 20, I'm on God's team. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. My power shows that the kingdom of God has come. It's not complete, but it's here. You, Christian, I hope, are enjoying many of the benefits of the kingdom of God. And one day you will enjoy them in its fullness. We're in the kingdom, but the war continues. 
Until when? Until the king returns. And he will return as a conqueror. Thirdly, consider the wars conquer. We see this in verse 21 when Jesus tells us a parable. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. He, he, get, he paints this picture of Satan as his powerful warlord, you know, armed and in an invincible castle, surrounded by this well-guarded treasure. And the treasure that he has is not silver and gold, but people. The people are his treasure. They're his prisoners. Jesus is describing a picture of a world in bondage to sin and to, to, to evil forces in this world. And, and he has brought ruin upon this world. And he holds much of humanity captive. But Jesus has, has come to liberate them. In verse 22, he says, But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he has trusted and divides the spoil. Right? So Satan is a strong man. But there is one who is stronger, namely Jesus. And he comes to, to, to the, those who are bound and he frees them by binding the strong man. And we see this even in the deliverance of this mute man, right? Satan's overrun. To the victor goes the spoils. Even though the devil is strong, Jesus clearly affirms that Jesus is so much stronger that he is liberating these captives with great ease as we've mentioned a number of times in our study of Luke's gospel, Jesus doesn't say, okay, everybody stand back now. He doesn't roll up his sleeves and say, okay, this is a tough one. It's going to take a moment. He just says, get out. In fact, in verse 20, he says, it is by what that the kingdom of God has come? You see that? By the finger of God. He says, God's little pinky is stronger than all the combined forces of the devil. And I have come to bring that kingdom. No one can stop me. He is here to rescue us. He is the divine warrior of prophecy. My friends, I tell you, war is going on. All of us are fighting in it. You have an enemy who lies to you. He says, you can't be forgiven of this sin. He tempts you. He says, God doesn't mind that. Or don't worry about that. You'll just get covered with grace on that. Or he ensnares you into bondage. and You just can't break free. Right? You need to call out to the strong man. Call out to the stronger man. Call out to Jesus. Bow your knee to Jesus. In fact, I think he wants you. I think he's calling for these people to declare their allegiance to him. He's saying you have to decide who you are with. You can't be neutral in this battle. There's no middle ground. There's no Switzerland in this war. People, people want to say, and we hear this all the time, you know, there's, listen, there's so many opinions about Jesus and they think this and those guys think that and, and who am I to decide? I'm just going to sit this one out. Right? You all talk about and debate about Jesus and, and I'm just going to go on with other things. Friends, if you are in any way tempted to take that position, if you are in any way tempted to be neutral towards Jesus, I want you to consider what he says very carefully in verse 23. Whoever is not with me is, see it, against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. He contends that neutrality towards him is an illusion. It does not exist. It's a mirage. There's no neutral. You're with Jesus, but if you're not with him, you're against him. That means you are with who? The devil. And as the chill of these words settle in, Jesus tells us a very grim story in verse 26. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. 
it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last day of the person is worse than the first. It's a picture uh, of, a, of, a, of a home, perhaps in the midst of war, and the homeowner doesn't secure his home. The windows are open at night, the doors are unlocked, and he comes home one day, and on his couch is sitting a soldier watching his TV. And this soldier decides, you know, I like your bed a lot more than my cot, and I like your house a lot more than, than, than my tent, and I, I think I'm going to be your roommate. And he's going to eat your food, and he's going to watch your TV. And at first, it's not so bad, and eventually it kind of gets rough, and maybe he gets abusive and a little scary, and, and you have to do something about this. So somehow you kick him out. You get him out of your house. And what do you do then? Well, foolishly, this man goes and he starts hanging draperies and sweeping the floor. And putting everything in order. He doesn't guard his house, doesn't secure his house. And the soldier realized he really liked that house, but doesn't want to get kicked out again. So he goes and gets seven buddies, and they come back, and they take over. And the last state of the person is far worse than the first. Now, clearly this has some application to the man who is mute, right? The, the demon is now kicked out, but that is not enough. You need to protect yourself from that happening again. The way to protect yourself is not... To reform your life. The way to protect yourself is not to put your house in order, not to sweep it clean, right? You're no longer dominated by a demon. I'm going to make some changes because evidently, according to Jesus, he's being watched. Harm is being planned against him and he is unprotected. All he's done is when he cleans his house, he just made it more inviting. And he goes out and finds others from this demonic community and they come and settle in. The point that Jesus is driving home is you don't need moral reform. You don't need obedience. You don't need to put your life in order. That is insufficient. Now I've changed my... If you're following along the notes where it says submit to the Lord, just cross that out. I was shaving last night and I was inspired um, as I was thinking about this. Put obedience is insufficient. I think that's what Christ is driving home. It's not enough. You can get your life in order without Jesus. You can. You can sweep it clean. Right? We were, Leger and I were watching 2020 last night, an hour on Scientology. It is a crazy, crazy cult. Right? But these people, it's working for them. Let's not deny that. These people's life are getting better by at least the world's point of view. Their life is getting in order. They are sweeping clean. And this happens not only in Scientology, it happens in the church. Right? Your life is a wreck. You start coming to church. You say, well, i got this sin area. I need to get that taken care of. i got this area. Right? And what you're doing, you're, you're fixing your life. You're, you find areas in which you're living in sin. You start to get out of those. You, 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 you start to maybe obey what Christ is saying. And you think everything is going well. And Jesus shows up and says, actually, all your moral reform, all your obedience to me, He's actually making your life worse. The last state of the person is worse. Listen, Christ is saying you are worse off if you are obedient to Him and have not submitted to Him, have not received Him as your Savior, than if you are living in sin. That's not something you hear often. You don't need moral reform. You need a new master. 
You don't need obedience. You need the Spirit of Christ living within you. Is it not interesting that in Luke 11 verse 13, remember, you who are evil know how to give, give gifts to your Father. How much more will the Father in heaven give what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask. You need the Holy Spirit residing in your life. Reformation, moral reformation without regeneration is disastrous. You think I'm wrong? Read on in Luke 11. You get the six woes on very moral people whose lives are swept in order. Very obedient people. And Christ says, woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. Those with self-control in their life, those who are moral, are often far more distant from Christ than those lives who are a mess. Right? Just read the gospel. Who is it who's coming to Christ? Is it orderly, the moral, the Pharisees, or is it the people who are messed up? The prostitutes and the tax collectors, the poor, right? Who's coming to him? Right? Listen, if you're in trouble, right, you, you fix your life and everything's good, I start obeying you. How is the gospel going to get to you? How, you're not going to say, I need grace, I need mercy, right? This is why the church is dying in the West. That's why it's flourishing in Africa and South America and even in places like the Middle East. Beware of obeying Jesus without loving Jesus. You need to be possessed by Jesus. Don't attempt spiritual neutrality. Right? You'll be possessed by something. Something will drive you. You need the Holy Spirit to come and take up residence in your life. My friend, will you not bow your knee to Christ even now and say, God, have mercy on me. My obedience is not enough. My fear is that there are some who are very moral that have been sitting in these pews perhaps for years and do not have Christ as their master. And it will leave you worse off. Obedience is insufficient. Yet, obedience is required. Right? So cross off, obey the Lord, just put obedience is required. Obedience is insufficient, but obedience is required. Verse 27, and he said these things, and a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breast at which you nurse. Now, listen, she's, she likes Jesus. She's listening to Jesus. She said, I wish I had a boy like Jesus. And she, she's praising him. She's being nice to him. Right? And, and, and Jesus responds to her in verse 28. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and what? Keep it. So what you said of Mary is true. She is blessed. But I'll tell you, there's a greater blessing to those who obey me. In fact, that's what Mary did, by the way. Right? God said, you're going to be the mother of the Son of God. And she says, let it be to me according to your word. She believed. She obeyed. And in doing so, Mary becomes the, the, the object of our, um, not the object of our praise, but an example of our faith. Right? In obeying the Lord. In fact, Mary endured great difficulty to exalt Christ. And, and I believe if she actually knew what people were doing about her, that people were offering her prayers and saying she's a co-redeemer and saying that she was without sin according to the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, saying she never died according to the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary and all the rest, it would make her sick. There is no doubt in my mind that the veneration of Mary that's taking place worldwide is a demonic plot to take our eyes off Christ. And if you think that's too strong, you think that's, well, you're just a Baptist pastor doing your Baptist thing. I'll tell you, the the very first veneration of Mary, the very first time she is venerated, it is rebuked, not by a Baptist pastor, but by none other than the Son of God himself. Don't, it's almost as if he knew what we would do. Don't you do it. Blessed rather are who? Those who hear the word of God and what? Keep it. Remember when Jesus, Luke 8, Jesus is teaching, the house is filled with a crowd, and Mary and his brothers come to get him, and they say, hey, your family's outside, and Jesus says, wait a second, 
Who's my mother and my brother and my sisters? My mother and my brother and our sisters are those who hear the Word of God and obey it. I've come to start a new family. I've come to create a new family, and it's those who will obey me. So yes, friends, obedience is not enough. You can't just obey your way into God's grace or into His heaven. You need to bow your knee and say, God, have mercy on me. But away with the fake faith that talks about faith and knows no obedience to Christ as our Lord. A saving faith is an obeying faith. Christ is offering you this very day a full pardon. Lay down your arms of rebellion against me and come to me and I will cover you with mercy and grace. That's what he offers us. Certainly you see the war, don't you? God created this world as we end our time in God's word this morning. Paradise, a world that's broken apart as the serpent's lies sink into our hearts immediately followed by sickness and death and hatred, violence and justice, war, idolatry, sadness, brokenness. God looks at the serpent and says, you've triumphed for a moment, but there is one coming who is mightier than you, and he will crush your head. He will deliver the captives. He will renew the world. That is the hope throughout the entire Old Testament. A divine warrior, a king who's coming to defeat the evil in us and around us. The Bible says he'll ride the wind. The, 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 the trees will sing. The world will be healed. Jesus shows up and says, I am him. I am the stronger man who has come to bind the devil. The warrior has come. The king has arrived and he's healing and he's preaching and he's liberating. And he enters Jerusalem with all these shouts and acclaim, Hosanna, they say, to the king of David. And five days later, he's bound. And he's led away. And, and he's plundered. He's put upon a cross. He's taking your bindings off you and placing them on Himself. He is taking your place. He is going to a cross that He might set the captives free. Will you not be free today? Will you not call out to Him, God, free me? And my Christian brothers and sisters, as we participate in this meal, will you not rejoice? That Christ, the stronger man, has become weak for you. That you might be in his family. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for our hero. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Will you give us a desire this morning to be blessed by you? through hearing and obeying our Lord. We pray for our friends here this morning that perhaps are trying real hard to live right and yet have not surrendered their life to Christ. And if they succeed, all they will do is drive themselves farther from you. Show them even now that their moral reform is disastrous without Christ taking up residence in their life? Will they call out in faith even now saying, have mercy on me, God? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord who has come to pay for sins and three days later rose from the dead and I submit my life to Him.
for the rest of us as we celebrate the Lord's death. You help us to rejoice that we have been set free, that we might praise our God and King. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.